Welcome everyone to a special edition of the Caribbean Science Fiction Network, a celebration of all things fantasy, folklore, speculative fiction, and of course, science fiction. Today I have with me from the US, Malka Older. A lot of the work that I've done in looking at how disasters are constructed socially has to do with this idea that they're exceptional, they're not connected to anything else, and they're just this blip that we can manage our way through and then go back to, quote, normal, unquote. We'll be talking about her latest collection and other disasters. How do we deal with a world in which there's, there are constant disasters of various kinds? How do we deal with a world that oppressed populations have been living in for a long time? What does that mean that more people are shifting into that experience? How do we understand this? How do we construct it? How do we parse it? So Malka, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now let's ease our way into talking about disasters <laughs> by first talking about the form of the collection because it's it's fiction, but it's also poetry. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about the inspiration to bring together different elements of writing into one collection. Well, actually, the publishers came to me and suggested that we do a collection. What was more interesting about it for me was that once they came with that suggestion and we started looking through what I had and we, we included the poetry, I had seen another writer uh, that I admire, Ravenna Emrys, was putting out a collection that included fiction and poetry. And so I suggested to them that we could look at some of some of my poetry that existed that that had not been published and we so we selected a couple of pieces that we felt echoed and complemented some of the some of the fiction you're also an academic so why was an emphasis on disasters important for you in fiction so I'm a disaster sociologist. First, I worked as a practitioner in disaster response. I didn't actually set out to do that. I was working in development uh, for a local NGO in Sri Lanka when the Indian Ocean tsunami occurred. And it was a very traumatic and very intense event that had a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes on in disasters. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot when you're working on a response, there's a lot of uh, thinking and calculation and trying to figure out how things fit together and what we're actually trying to get back to or build back better or you know what what does this look like how can we protect against it happening again you know it brings in these these problems of chance and probability and risk and uh the the, the intersection of the day-to-day -day, the mundane the with exceptional uh and all these these different things um the interaction between human settlements and buildings with nature so it became something that i was well traumatized by i think but um but also really fascinated by and really interested in how it works and, and really what it can illuminate for us beyond the disaster because one of the sort of principles of my disaster sociology is that by looking at disaster times when things are intense and heightened and in a short time frame, so they're compressed and there's a lot of media attention, so there's a lot of documentation. We can actually learn a lot from that about non-disaster times and it can tell us things about the way we live, quote unquote, normally. So I study disasters um, and because I worked in disasters also, it just meant that I was sort of thinking about them a lot and working through some of that trauma as well as some of the, the more intellectual parts of it. Uh, so they, they, they came out a lot in my writing. And, you know, when I looked at the collection and the different uh, elements that, that were there, certainly disasters was a big one. You mentioned Build Back Better <laughs> and that political framework that is operating in this collection. 
At various times, we read of different states seceding in the U.S. How do you see disasters coinciding with politics? You know, I write quite a lot about political futures. My trilogy, The Sentinel Cycle, which starts with infomocracy, is largely about a future in which the nation state is is almost obsolete and most of the, the globe is organized into much smaller units, um, much smaller and also much more um, self-identifying as opposed to determined by colonial boundaries um, and other borders that were negotiated with lots of bloodshed or carelessness over time. So I think about that a lot, that the piece that you mentioned in the book is is actually a short story from an anthology called Who Will Speak for America? And it was commissioned shortly after the 2016 election. So thinking about fragmentation and thinking about collapse was kind of in the air as it continues to be today. I don't consider this idea of of secession and the crumbling of political units as necessarily a disaster. I think it can certainly lead to disasters or trigger disasters, depending on how it's managed. Um, But I have a really, you know, I think the nation state system itself is a long running catastrophe. And so one way or another, we're going to have to move out of it. Hopefully we can do that in ways that do not create a lot of uh, humanitarian or ecological disasters. Um, I'm not hugely confident about that. But I don't think that that the disintegration of a state uh, by itself is inherently tragic or or negative. Um, So that piece, in a way, you know, it sounds perhaps very dire when we're used to thinking of of a country and, 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 you know, we've been taught, oh, the the Civil War was, you know, it was this threat to the whole fabric of democracy because the country was going to split up. But when you come to the end of it, there's really potential for moving into a better place through this this transition. One story in particular, The Divided, is focused on a Mexican community and a magical wall separating Mexico from the U.S. or what is left of the U.S. Say more about aspects of inclusion or exclusion, as it were, in this story as part of disasters. And I also understand that you have some Cuban ancestry. So how did this, if at all, factor into your framing of exclusion? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, the, the story, that story is written from the perspective of someone living in Mexico near the border with the U.S. As the daughter of a refugee um, and also the granddaughter of an immigrant and the great-granddaughter of immigrants. Um, you know, it's it's something that I think a lot about and these feelings of moving, of being displaced, of being in a different place, of seeing from a different perspective. All of that is is really important to me in my work. And that particular story, it almost wrote itself. It felt so um, so correct and so tied to the what we're talking about because, you know, we, we, we have been talking for these five years or more about this physical wall, which is, you know, it's just such a ridiculous thing. And the, the, the story begins by saying they couldn't possibly build them, right? Because this was sort of a mantra during the election. Oh, it's not real. It's just pandering. It's just some, and of course they've built it, you know, parts of it to great cost, um, both human and environmental uh, and, and also financial cost actually, um, which is of course part of the reason it's being built is because it's it's got financial benefit for certain groups and people. But the idea there's this physical wall and then there's sort of all of the ideas that come behind it because the physical wall, yes, it does function as a physical barrier, but it's also ridiculous as we know from so many examples throughout history to think that a physical wall is going to prevent people from moving. It doesn't. 
you know, it prevents certain people. It makes it harder for certain groups of people, but we're never going to stop people from moving. Gosh, I hope we're never going to stop people from moving. It's a very, you know, it's, it's, it's an illusion. It's something that, that, that is, is done because people like the idea of control and they like the idea of being able to limit who's in their group, which is just horrifying and uh, usually counterproductive. But, you know, in the story, because the walls become magical and they completely shut off this country um, to the north of the narrator. And there's this, you know, then it becomes this sort of mystery, not just not really why they came up so much as, okay, no one can go in and out. What's happening inside of there? Is it a catastrophe you know, is a worse catastrophe within those walls than what's happening to those of us who are left on the outside and suddenly have no trade with this, you know, this major trade partner where people were going every day to work and coming back. And, you know, that's suddenly been cut off and we've lost friends and family and neighbors. But maybe what's happening inside there that we don't know about is worse. And then at the end, of course, you know, there's a suggestion that it might happen again in turn because of racism within that country to their, towards their southern neighbors and towards their towards immigrants who come in and, and contribute to their country. So yeah, it was um, really trying to, to look at that link between the physical and the emotional and psychological and cultural elements to these ideas of dividing ourselves. Almost tied to what happens in the divided is the xenophobia that occurs throughout the collection. I wanted to get a sense from you how do you see these aspects of inclusion or exclusion, as it were, playing out in the future as a science fiction writer? I mean, for me, I think, you know, the the, the fundamental thing that I'm, I'm looking at in the collection is empathy and this these ideas of being able to see from the perspectives of others and um, feeling like you're in a place where you don't fit and perhaps discovering that actually you do fit there. It just, this difference is, is an illusion. Um, so, you know, it, it is, it's about the ways that we do divide ourselves and also the ways that we are able to reach out and cross over that, whether it's to an entire alien species um, in some of the stories, whether it's to parts of humanity that stayed behind thousands of years earlier when the rest immigrated to other planets in some of the stories or whether it's you know here on earth today or even i mean there's one story which is which is technically not speculative which is the email heiress which and which is very much about you know how people become isolated or d decide to reach out and connect and and form bonds with other people Back to what it means to build back better. <laughs> the political framework runs throughout the collection. I suppose as a disaster sociologist, how do you see politics playing out in the future of this collection and, and, and what, if anything, can we learn from this? Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's something that I find really interesting, um, politics, because it, it has to do with the way that we organize ourselves and the way, again, that we either work together or fail to. I wrote this trilogy, as I said, that's about the post-nation state world, and it's very much about democracy. After I wrote it, to me, it was very, writing about democracy, writing about an election specifically, was a really, narratively, you know, it was such a great thing where there's all this inbuilt tension and there's a timeline and, you know, you have these, these characters and they're competing and, you know, you can have scandals and interests and there's just so much there, right? It was really, it was really fun to write about, as well as having, you know, that there was a, a deeper point behind it that I wanted to make about the ways that we're failing democracy uh, in all our countries right now, 
in that, you know, we remain stuck in antiquated ideas that are both tied to old technologies and also tied to old fears about giving power to the people. And, and so we really haven't given democracy a full chance in any sense of the word. So I wanted to, you know, play with that. So there was a serious point to it, but also like narratively, it was really fun. There was a lot of action to work into and a lot of intrigue. And then afterwards, you know, I was, as I, as I spoke to people about the book, I started to realize that there are in fact very, very few fiction about democracy, which surprised me because it is such a dramatic setting inherently, but it's not something that there's been a whole lot of writing about. And so I think that's part of the reason I felt like there's a lot of, of territory there to explore and a lot of things that we can say about what this means that we're trying to govern ourselves and the problems that we're having in doing that and the ways we can make it better. And, and also just, yeah, I mean, all that drama of, of how we, we compete for this kind of power. Questions of humanity come up in this collection as well, particularly as someone who's, who, who focuses on the connections between disasters and communities. How do you see the question of humanity coming up within this connection? Because at one point the, there was reference to reverse engineering emotions. So talk to us about humanity in a, in a world where disasters take so many different forms. So I think that in a lot of ways we kind of overemphasize the importance of humanity as distinct from other living things, for example, or to say like, oh, there's some characteristics of humanity that are super duper special. And I think when a lot of times when people talk about something, you know, the, the, the words have come to have this very twisted meaning because if you say something is inhumane, most of the things that people call inhumane are the sorts of things that people have been doing to each other for millennia. You know, they're, they're almost the most fundamentally human things that you can imagine because other animals don't actually torture each other for the most part. Um, and so the things that we call inhuman are in fact, say that recognizing that the reason we call them inhuman is that we have somewhat changed. You know, there is some degree of society condemning these things more and more. I don't know if we're going to get to a point where we can actually behave in a humane way as a large group. There is this contradiction between what we want to imagine humanity is and what the evidence says it is. So now that said, I call myself a humanitarian because in doing humanitarian work, I sort of came at length to, to realizing that the, the guiding principles that I want to, to use for many of my ethical decisions have to do with seeing every person as a, an, a human, as a fully three-dimensional individual human. Who, you know, I really want to expand that. Um, to be more comprehensive of all living things, but I'm, you know, I'm working on, on what that looks like. Then to, to make a big deal over drawing a line between when an AI becomes human, to me, this is kind of, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I see the usefulness of it, you know? So I don't really think too much about what would make a machine human, you know? I'm, I'm a little more concerned about like our interactions with other species and how we can perceive, you know, even species that we admit to be sentient as fully deserving of personhood. And for machines, you know, I, I, I do have a story in there about it's considered an AE. It's not artificial intelligence, it's artificial empathy. And it is about the importance of feelings and emotions in intelligence and sort of what that means. You know, I think that those are important things for us to consider as we figure out <laughs> the kinds of humans we want to be more than drawing a line of what is, what is human and what is human. 
I read something just a few days ago. It said Earth is going to get a black box to record climate disasters. <laughs> so seeing that we have an authority on disasters, I should ask you, given that one of your stories talks about a black box, how does that make you feel as a science fiction writer to see the future in your collection play out in our present? Yeah, I mean, it's always a really interesting feeling. And a lot of the themes from my from my novels have also kind of come up in different ways. And I always feel a little bit, it's less that I've been looking into the future than that I've been reading the present. You know, I, I think that the story that I wrote about a black box is very much about our desire to conserve exactly our memories and our experiences and sort of questioning whether those things are really valuable to anybody else. I mean, yes, maybe to our immediate descendants and friends, but, and then to, to archaeologists or historians on some level, but, you know, this idea that anyone is ever going to have time to look through, assuming that it did not degrade, but assume, you know, the, the amount of digital information that exists about even one individual today, one fully wired up individual today. Yes, it, it would be a super valuable archive for people in the future to look at. And yes, I'm sure people would absolutely geek out about that. But when you look at the sheer amount, the sheer scale of stuff that we're recording about ourselves um, as if it was incredibly precious and somehow uh, proves our individuality. Some of those tensions were what I was exploring. And you know, I think we see something very similar in this idea of we're going to record what's happening on Earth and maybe no one will ever see it. And maybe someone will, but they won't understand it. Or maybe they they will and it'll be invaluable to them in figuring out what happened and as a warning. But you know, that sort of continuation of this sort of navel gazing and fascination with ourselves and our history, it's a key thing theme from for modernity. We do so much self-recording, self-documentation, self-promotion, self-publication. <laughs> I'm also not trying to say that that's inherently bad. I do think we need perspective in our narcissism. <laughs> but, I, you know, I don't think it's a terrible thing to want to write a diary and, and have a photo album. You know, that's not what I'm saying. But I do think that it's 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 a dynamic that has intensified in a lot of ways with the, the technology that we've developed. And we've developed that technology in certain ways because we want to preserve each moment because time is terrifying and mortality is terrifying terrifying and the number of people who exist in the world is in tension with our sense of specialness and individuality and and you know all those things are scary and so we build these machines to tell ourselves that it's okay we're recording everything right so you know i think that that's it's it's a zeitgeist sort of thing you know it's a it's it's part of the present just like the themes of of privacy and data and technology and democracy are really important everywhere right now. And so if I wrote a long enough book about them, I was going to hit some things that were going to really happen. It's a little, you know, as a science fiction writer, it's a little strange to have things pop up. What you you kind of hope that at least the book gets to publication before the things occur. And I, I've certainly tried writing. There's There are a couple of very far future stories in that and I'm, I'm working far future stuff now, which is kind of, it's kind of nice not to have to worry that it's, we're immediately going to trip over ourselves. But it's also really, it's always it's interesting and somewhat validating when it happens. Again, not in the sense so much as seeing the future as of, okay, yes, you know, this is definitely something that is in the present that other people are, are very keyed into and are working on in their different ways. So Malka, we're coming down to the end of the chat. So very quickly, one final thing. What is the next disaster? <laughs> I mean, we're not out of, there's, there's so many ongoing disasters, but to say next almost feels very weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm pulling your leg. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's ongoing. Um, and, and I think too, you know, 
I actually recently wrote a paper for a book that's going to come out next year about governing in the Anthropocene to say you know, we traditionally we think of disasters as exceptional and different from normal. And a lot of the work that I've done in looking at how disasters are constructed socially has to do with this idea that they're exceptional, they're not connected to anything else, and they're just this blip that we can manage our way through and then go back to, quote, normal, unquote. And a lot of what I have written academically and, and, and sometimes popularly in nonfiction has to do with, no, no, we have to connect because the roots of disasters are always in our everyday governance, right? So I, I spent a lot of time trying to undo this idea of an exceptionality, but what I write in this new piece is that in the Anthropocene, in the moment that we're in now, disasters are actually becoming the constant. Disasters are becoming the normal, which is a contradiction in turn. For a lot of populations in the world, that has been the case for a long time. We just refuse to see those situations as emergencies or as disasters. We, we are unwilling to frame them in that way. But a a lot of communities are in constant crisis and have been for decades, uh, centuries maybe. So thinking about the shift in consciousness and, and moving from this idea that there is a kind of normalcy where everything is fine and then there are occasional disasters that are exogenous and come out of nowhere and nobody could have predicted them and government solves things and then it goes back to normal. That is not true, that story, but that's the story we've been telling ourselves. And so the shift from that into everything is burning all the time and we're sitting here saying it's fine and you know, how do we deal with a world in which there's there are constant disasters of various kinds? How do we deal with the world that oppressed populations have been living in for a long time? What does that mean that more people are shifting into that experience? How do we understand this? How do we construct it? How do we parse it? Uh, all of those things, I think, are very imminent in terms of our modern and privileged perspective on the world. So, Malka, any final words for our listeners? I try to have a very diverse approach to my writing. So some of it, as I mentioned, is very far future. Some of it is the day after tomorrow. Some of it is actually like 15 years ago. You know, there's some poetry, as we mentioned. There's some short stories. There's some fragments. There's a story about space marine midwives. There's a story about artificial empathy. And then there's a lot of different stuff in there, but it does coalesce around these themes. I think that the, the collection has a lot of stories that are about belonging and not belonging and about having perspective that shift suddenly or, you know, suddenly understanding a different point of view, a different person or alien's view of the world. They're about movement, migration and travel and research and this outsider-insider dichotomy and all of these elements. Malka, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Your collection may not be set in the Caribbean, but I think the discussion around disasters certainly has to be so thank you very much for sharing it with us thank you so much for having me and to everyone listening continue to stay tuned to the caribbean science fiction network bye